Our reading from God's word this morning comes from 1 Kings, verses, verse, chapter 4, rather, verse 29 to 5, verse 18. So we begin, 1 Kings 4, 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Kalkal and Dada, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is no adversary or disaster. I intend therefore to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today. For he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. So Hiram sent word to Solomon. I have received the message you sent me and will do all you want in providing the cedar and pine logs. My men will haul them down from Lebanon to the sea and I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you specify. Then I will separate them and you can take them away and you are to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. In this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedars and pine logs he wanted, and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, in addition to 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil. So Solomon continued to do this for Hiram year after year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom, just as he had promised him. There were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project 
and directed the workmen. At the king's command, they removed from the quarry large blocks of quality stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and the men of Gebel cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building of the temple. I feel inclined to ask you if you could answer some of the questions on that, but I won't. So ends God reading. May bless it. God bless it to us. Amen. In 1950s Brooklyn, a young girl growing up in an apartment was intrigued by qualities that she saw in her father and her maternal grandmother. There was something that distinguished them, that made them different from everybody else that she knew. They weren't particularly well educated, and yet they possessed an uncanny ability to remain calm in the midst of crises. They made good decisions. And they conveyed an almost palpable sense of emotional contentment, often in the face of considerable adversity or uncertainty. The girl's name was Vivian Clayton, and her story is told in the New York Times. Her upbringing experience led her to do academic research into the subject of wisdom, which was what she felt she saw in her father and her grandmother. And she started by rummaging through the Hebrew Bible for clues to wise behaviour. So she looked at the stories of Job. She looked at King Solomon. She explored the meaning of ancient Proverbs. And what emerged from that analysis, she said, was that wisdom meant a lot of different things. But it was always associated with knowledge, frequently applied to human social situations. It involved judgment and reflection and was almost always embedded in a component of compassion. Something that's very difficult to pin down, but Clayton became the first psychologist to ask, what does wisdom mean and how does age affect it? She pioneered ways of analysing wisdom as an empirical phenomenon and argued that it represented a social, impersonal, interpersonal form of knowledge about human nature that resisted erosion and could increase with age. Though the old are not always wiser and the young are not always lacking in wisdom. And if we look at the story of Solomon, we see that wisdom is a gift of God given to him to enable him to govern the nation of Israel as their new leader. And for the most part, until a surfeit of wives and concubines led him down the wrong path, he did a very good job. So that we say, if someone has the wisdom of Solomon or needs the wisdom of Solomon, that means they have or need to be exceptionally wise. We need to be praying for wisdom for our political leaders, whoever they turn out to be in a fortnight's time. Skeptics debate whether Solomon was really as wise as the scriptures make out. They argue that no one has that breadth of wisdom. Uh, Perhaps some of the wisdom ascribed to him is little more than the stuff of legend. Could someone really be that politically astute? Exercise such wisdom in discerning justice. Be such a bookworm and such an expert in botany and zoology as well. Yet true wisdom is always measured in breadth as well as depth. That's why having a PhD might mean you're clever, but it says nothing about whether you're wise or not. 
That's because academics, almost by definition these days, study in such a way that they know more and more about less and less. Experts in an extremely narrow field that's beyond the comprehension or interest of anybody else. It's got very little to do with practical wisdom. But a person who's wise won't be pigeonholed into other people's categories. Their profound store of wisdom is capable of being applied in a multitude of different scenarios. A wise person has the deep-seated capacity to cope with the unexpected and to to navigate successfully when they venture beyond or find themselves in situations outside the horizons of their own experience. They will always have the capacity to see the bigger picture from points of view other than just their own. And they'll be able to make good judgments on that basis and act accordingly. And when you look at the account of the opening years of Solomon's reign, the breadth of wisdom he displays is impressive, even though at times we may have ethical qualms about aspects of his behaviour. He begins his reign by ruthlessly eliminating his rivals and settling scores with his father's enemies. Adonijah, his brother, rival to the throne, executed. Abiathar, the priest who supported Adonijah's claim, banished. Joab, David's former commander-in-chief who supported Adonijah, executed. Shimei, who had cursed his father David when Absalom tried to seize power, executed. It's like a mini-Stalinist purge. But at the end of it, the verdict is that the kingdom is now secure in Solomon's hands. Maybe we could excuse him by saying that he took such drastic action before he prayed and asked God for wisdom to govern the nation. Yet there's no denying that he showed ruthless political astuteness here. His wisdom in dispensing justice is illustrated by that proverbial incident when two prostitutes come before him, both claiming that they are the mother of a baby boy. One of them is telling the truth. The other is lying because she's turned over in her sleep and smothered her own baby who is in bed with her. Each of them claims ownership of the living child. Solomon resolves the issue by commanding that the child be cut in two and they each have half at which point the true mother cries out that she would rather see the child live and the other woman have it than see the child die. And by that wisdom, Solomon arrives at the truth. It was the incident that established him in the eyes of the whole nation as a man of wisdom. And they had had good reason to be grateful for his wise leadership. Their experience under Solomon's wise reign was that they ate, they drank, they were happy. And that was all most of them wanted. They lived in peace. It was more than enough for them. Solomon became internationally famous because of his great learning. 3,000 proverbs attributed to him. Over 1,000 songs written by him. An encyclopedic knowledge of plant life, animals and birds, reptiles and fish, all accumulated while he was in the process of governing a large and prosperous nation. How did he do it? You might ask. Wisdom was God's gift to him. Then there's the matter of building the temple, the task entrusted to him by his father. We talk of Solomon building the temple, but beyond perhaps the symbolic laying of a foundation stone, he did pretty little, didn't pretty much build anything at all. But he did mastermind the entire operation. Exactly how much of the preparatory work David had done for him, we can't be sure. And if David had put a lot of work in, That might have been a mixed blessing. It's very hard to take on board someone else's project 
and make a success of it. Jack will be leading us in our thinking tonight about the actual building of the temple. This morning we're just thinking about the preparations involved. And wisdom is shown in the recognition that any big project requires a great deal of planning and preparation before it can get off the ground. And we see the extent of Solomon's preparations in chapter 5 of 1 Kings. There were those trade negotiations with King Hiram of Tyre for vast quantities of timber that would be required for the construction. Solomon offers to pay the Sidonian tree fellers whatever wages Hiram sets. Because he says, no one can cut trees down like the Sidonians do. Is it really that hard to cut down trees? Or is Solomon engaging in a bit of flattery here because he knows that without the raw materials that Hiram can give him, there's no way he's going to be able to build the temple. So let's use your men because they're brilliantly cutting down trees and that will give me the raw materials I need to build the temple that God has commissioned to me to do. And in any event, when Hiram receives Solomon's invitation, he recognises Solomon's wisdom and he's happy enough to oblige him. In exchange for imports of wheat and oil, Hiram agrees to export wood, and his workforce will fell the timber, timber, lash it into rafts, bring them down the coast, and break them up for Solomon to use as his building materials. Solomon, for his part, exercises wisdom in managing a huge labour force to get the job done. 30,000 men sent in shifts to work one month out of every three up in the forests of Lebanon to work alongside the Sidonians in felling timber. 80,000 men cutting stone in the hills. 70,000 transporting the wood and stone up to Jerusalem. That's a workforce of some 180,000 supervised by 3,300 foremen. One foreman to every 50 workers. That's an efficient management ratio and a good use of resources. And we're not told how many skilled craftsmen were employed in cutting and dressing the stone and timber on site. Solomon worked people extremely hard. We know this because after he died, the people went to his son, hoping for a better deal, because they felt, as they said, Solomon put a heavy yoke on us and subjected us to harsh labour. They didn't have an easy time of it under Solomon, but they did it for him because of the respect they had for him as a wise leader and a good ruler. Rehoboam, his son, lacked wisdom, and as such the kingdom split apart under his reign. He resolved to tighten the screw to make life more oppressive for the the workers, and they rebelled and would have nothing whatsoever to do with him. It's testimony to the practical nature of Solomon's wisdom that people were prepared to work so hard for him on this project. Yes, they had plenty to eat, plenty to drink, they enjoyed life, but they worked extremely hard hard as well. And Solomon was able to use people's skills to get the best out of that workforce and that nation. Particularly as they were a conscript labour force. One volunteer is worth ten pressed men, my Latin teacher used to say to me at school. But Solomon got a huge amount of work out of people who had no choice but to work for him. But they did so willingly and gladly because they recognised the wisdom that he had. Multi, multi faceted wisdom. That's what we see in Solomon. Wisdom in establishing a firm power base. Wisdom in dispensing justice. Wisdom expressed in writing proverbs that we still have in our Bibles today. Wisdom in composing songs. Wisdom in understanding the world of nature. Wisdom in securing strong political alliances. Wisdom in establishing effective trade agreements. 
Wisdom in masterminding the construction of a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Wisdom in managing a conscripted workforce of some 180,000 people. Wisdom. Proverbial wisdom. Too good to be true. I doubt it. Would Solomon have accrued such a reputation for wisdom had he not been able to perform so well in so many different areas? Wisdom. It's something you will need if you want to make the most of life and leave the world a better place after you have gone. Wisdom gives us the inner resources we need to draw on in any and every situation. But how do you get it? It doesn't come automatically with advancing years. On the contrary, some would argue that the seeds of wisdom are sown in the way in which we cope with adversity adversity as adolescents. But for its part, the Bible is clear that wisdom is God's gift. And as such, it is something he makes available to each and every one of us here this morning or listening to this sermon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon himself said. And if we want it, we should ask God for it, James says, because God gives generously to those who ask him and seek him. I suspect that wisdom is a quality that will become more and more valuable and important as we live in an increasingly uncertain and unstable world. When life is not straightforward, we will need to be able to draw on the hidden depths of wisdom to survive, actually, and to make the most of life in difficult and adverse circumstances. The problem for us is that we live in a society where there is information overload. All kinds of data gets crammed into our minds, higgledy-piggledy, with insufficient time to reflect on the meaning of what we encounter. Even our leisure time just impresses more and more on our minds as we browse the net or or we look at the television. There is no time to sit down and sort it out and make sense of it all. Masses of knowledge. No mental space to sort it out, or wisdom to know what to do with all that knowledge that we have at our disposal. So let me invite you, in a moment of quiet this morning, to stand on the threshold of your mind and look inside and be still in the presence of the Lord. Lord, would you clear away the rubbish from my mind? Would you bring order to my mental chaos and confusion? Sort it out. Take charge. Tidy up my soul. Enable me to have access to the knowledge that is stored there and help me to know how to use it to make sense of it, to draw on it in this coming week.
keep me from living my life at the level of the immediate and the superficial. Instead, Lord, help me to live my life out of the depths of your presence in my heart. Lord, in accordance with your promise, would you give me wisdom? that I might make the most of the gift of life you've given to me and live life well for you and for those around me. In Jesus' name, amen.